Well, hello and welcome back to Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we are back to talk about another piece of Netflix-generated algorithmic... Piece of something. ...action film content. Uh, the Jamie Foxx-led recent action film extravaganza known as Day Shift. Do you like 90s gangster rap? I do. Do you, in, do you enjoy <laughs> the sun-drenched colors of Who doesn't? Southern California? Do you perhaps enjoy Oscar-winning actors slumming for a paycheck? Don't we all? Then you may be the ideal individual to enjoy Netflix's Day Shift, directed by J.J. Perry, former stuntman extraordinaire from the same school as Chad Stahelski. David Leach and other people involved in the John Wick franchise are now <laughs> wielding an inordinate amount of power in Hollywood as a result. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a fun little action something or other from our good friends at Netflix Productions um, that somehow is able to and I, I will say this to the film's credit is able to avoid the Netflix look uh, because let's be honest, most of Netflix's content mill stuff kind of all looks the same they have a they have a certain odor to them yeah it's like a you know whatever whatever color grading team they're using they've kind of got the settings put and they just kind of just hit the buttons like let it go and uh yeah they, it, it's, it all kind of looks the same but this one you know it's got a little style it's got a little flair it's got a little snoop so a lot of snoop really but, um, but not it's, enough not enough it has a lot of snoop but still not enough snoop um, and if anything, that's my number one issue with Day Shift. It is. Yeah. It really is. When, I, when the film ended, I was like, not enough Snoop. It was like when I saw Batman Returns in the theaters and I left the film being like, not enough Batman in that Batman movie. Yeah. It's not enough. It's like, not enough Snoop in my Day Shift movie. <laughs> it's a similar feeling. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Day Shift. Uh, this uh, sort of dropped uh, somewhat unceremoniously on Netflix for me. I don't. I don't follow the Netflix blogs that are constantly pitching the, the next thing that's coming around the corner. Um, but, you know, this was one of their late summer drops, which is typically when Netflix kind of starts throwing stuff out there as people start to you know, come back in from summer vacation, although that hasn't really been an issue for a while. But, you know, so um, so Day Shift sort of showed up and uh, it's vampires, right? It's not hidden. It's, it's literally in the logos to vampire teeth. So you, you kind of know what's going on from the start. Um, and I'm going to be super honest. Don't really give a shit about vampire stuff. Same. Not my cup of tea. Um, when Interview with a Vampire came out, I shrugged and said, who cares? Um, and, and that didn't really change. It hasn't really changed. Uh, vampires have never been compelling film and, and, and just literature villains to me. Um, I understand why people get into them. Uh, I certainly think Bram Stoker's Dracula is a formative piece of, of Western literature that, uh, that we, we couldn't do without. And I think it, as, a, as a book, it works pretty well. But that book's not really about Dracula. Like, it's about other stuff. Yeah. Um, like, Dracula's in it, of course, but it's not, he's not, like, the focal point. It's, you know, whatever. But so, like, vampires just have never really been, like, great movie antagonists for me. Right there, the ways in which you kill them are pretty well defined and not that difficult to pull off. Um, so they're never been super intimidating. Maybe it was because I watched a lot of Monster Squad as a kid, <laughs> and they just sort of like 
and it's a bunch of 12 year olds just like beating the shit out of a vampire for the whole movie and just like upending every plan so maybe i just always saw vampires as comical losers but it needless to say of it being a vampire thing usually turns me off more than it's going to turn me on i am um, the same way i i don't like vampires i feel like a lot of my friends and acquaintances and, and peers throughout time have been very seduced by the sexy vampire trope. And sexy that's vampire. that's just not for me. I don't think vampires are sexy. I don't think that myth is sexy. I missed, I was a little too young for the Anne Rice craze and I was a little too old for the Twilight craze. So, you know, maybe I just missed the boat somehow. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's not for me. Uh, that said, if you like vampires, this sure does have some vampires in it. Boy, it do. Boy, howdy, it do. Um, so, uh, you know, from a production standpoint, this, this has some decent bona fides behind it. Uh, so it's the first directing, you know, sort of output of uh, a guy named J.J. Perry, who has been friends with Chad Stahelski as a, uh, you know, stunt person, and eventually stunt coordinator, and in, in some cases second unit director, for years. Like there are pictures of these guys shirtless with each other in the '90s on various film sets, you know, doing flips and stuff. Right? They've they've both been around. Uh, Stahelski, of course, his first like major gig was body doubling um, Brandon Lee in The Crow, as we discussed in. Uh, might have discussed in the past. So J.J. Um, Perry joined that group of guys who was doing that kind of stunt work on Mortal Kombat. Um, so, Which is a masterpiece. Seen, a masterpiece. Paul W.S. Anderson's literal masterpiece. The first video game movie that ever was like popular or successful. Um, but he <laughs> was the stunt double for Johnny Cage. So it is highly likely Nay, I'm going to say very likely that J.J. Perry, director of Day Shift, was the stunt performer who did the splits nut punch on Goro in Mortal Kombat. And that gives me no small measure of joy, I'll be honest, uh, to think that the director of this film was the guy who nut punched that animatronic four-armed guy um, back in that you know, movie in 1995. That's but exciting. In any case, it's, it's exciting. Exciting to think of the legacy, the history that brought us to this moment <laughs> in time. Um, he also played all of the robots in the second Mortal Kombat movie, like Cyrax and Noob Cybot and all that stuff, which again, that sounds very fun. Uh, but he's, he's been around for a long time. Uh, he, he did do some stunts work on Time Cop 2, which may be my favorite direct <laughs> video sequel of a weird comic book property once starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, and he's, you know, he's been around, but he's, he's definitely gotten more uh, work as a stunt coordinator, second unit director in the last 10 years or so. And so supposedly I watched some interviews and Perry said that he was really content just sort of like doing what he was doing, right? Stunt coordinating, second unit directing is needed, um, flying around the world, doing cool projects. And it was Chad Stahelski who is putting together his own production company and trying to produce movies um, because what we're seeing now is the era of the stuntman made good, right? There's been a call in Hollywood for a long time that stunt people 
have needed specific recognition for their work. Um, it's it's literally one of the last behind the camera, and in, in many cases in front of the camera groups to not get any sort of industry recognition. They have their own awards, like there's a stunt person's you know group that doles out awards for impressive stuff, but it's certainly not recognized by something like the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and, and even in the technical categories, there's no recognition for excellent stunt work, even though in this era of comic book blockbusters, in this era of punchy, punchy, kicky movies happening all the time, stunt people are arguably more important to the film industry than they've ever been before. So you've got guys like Chad Stahelski out there being like, dude, let's make good, right? We've got this momentum. You know, he and David Leach had worked on John Wick, which this is another one of those. It's another plus 40 actor coming in, doing the big stunt movie, you know, kind of, kind of picture. And that's fine. Why don't we go out and we make more movies that we want to make? Right. And we'll get the we'll get our recognition that way. And, you know, so Stahelski brought him in, they found a project, they developed it, and Day Shift was the result. But this is JJ Perry's first totally directed movie, right? Everything up until this point's been second unit stuff, which while that is directing and it is is still just as challenging as any other kind of directing, especially if you're filming the fight scenes, which is normally what these guys are doing, um, you can feel that he's sort of a novice filmmaker in some other areas. but um, So the movie has some interesting background, but one of the things that you'll immediately see if you check out a trailer or anything is that the approach to vampires in this film is, is I'll go ahead and say, fairly unique. Would you agree? Um, Yeah. I, I don't think I had seen anything quite like this before. Um, so it, apparently a lot of this was shot sort of either during or on the tail end of the COVID lockdown in California. So they were, were limited in the kinds of people that they could bring in. And so, um, again, this is all like hearsay stuff that I've, I've heard in, in interviews and things. But apparently, like, a lot of the Cirque du Soleil folks in the Vegas shows were all out of work because the shows weren't running. And so J.J. Perry, wanting to sort of like, you know, take care of the stunt performer community in a certain way, but also sort of juice his movie with something a little special. He hired a bunch of the Cirque du Soleil performers who are gymnasts and contortionists and, you know, just these incredible, you know, sort of body performers really to come in and, and do the vampire work in this, or at least some of it, not all of it, but um, so there, there are a lot of super bendy vampires in this movie <laughs> that's um, putting get, it lightly <laughs> yeah like they get crunched and bent and uh the the opening fight scene of this film uh involves an aged well it's not an aged vampire it's in some decent old age makeup i guess um getting straight up just multi-pretzeled by jamie fox like head slammed into brickwork and bent backwards and you know some of it's obviously like you know rag dolls and stuff it's not like an actual person but there's just a lot of weird contortionist stuff going on with these vampires. Like their bodies break and bend and flex, but then they kind of just like put themselves back together. And it's an interesting look. It's, it's something that I've never really seen incorporated with traditional, you know, sort of American chop sake fight choreography. Right? Yeah. It's, it's an odd combination. Um, that works for the most part. Like, I don't want to make it sound like it's bad. It's most of it's good. Some of it, they do some weird like camera flipping and stuff to try and sort of like, you know, roll the camera with the performer or something. And not all that works, but 
Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting look. Um, uh, how would you summarize the plot of this film? Um, I think there's a couple different directions you could go, because in one in one in one way, this film is very simple, like sort of shockingly simple. But in in another way, depending on what you choose to focus on, it's actually an incredibly convoluted and strangely structured plot. So it's I'm it's like an e- I'm not in what, the camp that this was a bit unnecessarily convoluted mm. because it um it suffers from and I I've said this many times about many things it suffers from like scene missing syndrome where in the middle of watching a scene I'll be like wait what's going on did we like did we <laughs> did we skip something my my partner says that all the time he's like did we skip something did I did we yeah. miss something I even felt that way about the opening of the movie it was moving really fast and it hadn't yes, explained yes. anything to us yet, like not even establishing shot kind of explaining. Um, it just got started. And I was momentarily afraid that it maybe we we sat on the remote and it skipped forward or something. Uh, but no, <laughs> always a problem <laughs> like, with me. Definitely. Uh, yeah, this this movie at its core, you could sum this up and say. Man who pretends to be pool man is actually a vampire hunter hunting vampires in Southern California and selling their teeth for money. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Um, But there are a number of convoluted and mostly unnecessary subplots that get tacked onto that relatively simple premise that don't really help it in a bunch of ways. Um, again, I mentioned, I've already mentioned John Wick, but this is definitely a John Wick movie. It wants to play in a lot of the same sandboxes as John Wick. We've got secret societies, uh, mysterious villains who are working in the background, you know, and, and maybe more powerful than we realize. We've got, you know, some sort of like some contrived family drama that gets thrown in here, um, which one of the things about John Wick that makes it work is that most of that gets dispensed with immediately, <laughs> right? So that we can focus on, you know, the subplot of, of, you know, strange murderous hitman being called back to the field. Um, you know, so like there's, there's just some interesting things. There, there, there's a Franco brother in this movie, which may be a hit or miss thing for a lot of people. It's fortunately, it's not the shitty Franco brother. I mean, I don't know anything about Dave Franco. He seems okay. He seems all right. I don't know. I don't think he, I don't think he's done anything to anybody. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's, like, intentionally trying to ruin the lives of, of women. So, I mean, that's a step in the right direction, um, you know, for, for most people, I suppose. But I'm not going to say this film does him any favors. If anything, Dave Franco is the literal butt of the joke in this mm-hmm. movie 90% of the time. Um, it's, okay, all right. So I was completely unaware, and I would say most people were completely unaware of Jamie Foxx until he was on in living color and, and really until he played Wanda on in living color, mm. which if you go back and watch the Wanda sketches on a living color, now they are awful and they, uh, it's they're, in they're living really color not, is not a great show. Uh, it does not hold up well no. in the 1990s. It was a bit revelatory and, and God bless the Wayans brothers for, for bringing it to us when we, we needed something to sort of distract from, 
just how terrible SNL was. And then we got mad TV, which was like somehow the like grunge version of in living color, which was even worse in most ways. But you know, I, we could talk about comedy shows for a long time. It, it doesn't really matter, but like Jamie Foxx has, has built his career from those humble origins into a highly respected dramatic actor. And then now he's in this and to say that he's slumming is like, like the understatement of the year. Like, I don't know why Jamie Foxx is in this other than he wanted a piece of that Keanu Reeves, John wick action. I right? think like, I'm, I think he wanted to make know. a movie with Snoop Dogg. Hey, maybe because that makes a ton of sense to me because he yeah. came alive in like every scene that they were in together. So I just kind of want to believe that it was just them having a good time. Yeah, like, I, I don't know if Jamie Foxx went into this project realizing that he was going to be upstaged in every scene that he's in with <laughs> Snoop Dogg. Like, at the end of this movie, I, I didn't really care much about Jamie Foxx, but I sure as heck cared about Snoop. Love it. I was it. like, is Snoop Love okay? It. What's going on with Snoop? Um, so, yeah, I think, I think you know, it's, it's easy for, like, a film reviewer to say that an actor is slumming. I think sometimes actors want to get a good paycheck, which I have no doubt that Jamie Foxx was given a... A great paycheck. This is this is what Netflix does, right? Netflix is worried about whether or not you'll click on a poster in Netflix. That's literally all they care about. So if they can put Jamie Foxx's very handsome, very very attractive m- human face on a poster, <laughs> it is a very say, human face. <laughs> it is a very human face. Perhaps the most human of faces. Um, I mean, because the dude is is he's. He's so recognizable and powerful and good in most of the movies that he's in. I mean, this is Django from Django Unchained, for God's sakes. Like, this is a dude who has worked with Taron fucking Tino. And here he is in this weird Netflix zombie or, like, weird Netflix vampire movie. Um, Like, and I understand, like, actors take projects for different reasons. But, yeah, I think this is a movie that he wanted to take because he knew he was going to get to do a bunch of stunts you know, run around, drive cars, do, do cool things, right? Like sometimes actors, I have no doubt, especially ones who are of the pick and choose, you know, in the pick and choose sort of status of their careers where they can just sort of like, I get to do whatever I want to do. I don't have to take jobs just because I need to, you know, pay for my pool or whatever. There got to be, you know, there has to be a contention of actors who are like, I just want to do something fun. I feel like in a lot of ways, I mean, I know we've talked about Keanu Reeves a lot already, but I think he's kind of at that phase too. I think that's why he did John Wick in the first place. Like this seems like an interesting thing to do. Um, so I, I don't want to fault Jamie Foxx or make it seem like he's he's working below his station. I think that's silly. He carries this movie. He really does. I mean, he's in nearly every scene. And for the most part, this movie is focused entirely on him. But he he definitely gets shown up a couple of times in this movie, mostly by Snoop. So uh, it's, it's a curious little thing. Uh, I think there's a lot going for it, but yet it's, there's a real sort of shotgun approach to the storytelling that I, I think sort of keeps it from being elevated from a, well, this is Sunday afternoon. I don't really have anything else going on. I've got an hour or two. Sure. To being like, Oh, this is a must watch. Like you have to see this movie. And and that's sort of a shame because I feel like with a couple of key changes it might have been able to get there, but it's it's hard to say. So um, 
let's talk a bit about some of the convoluted plot aspects before we get into spoilers so people can kind of see sort of what else is going on here. So the key conceit is that Jamie Foxx is a vampire hunter in Southern California, mm-hmm. a place where, you know, Edward Cullen would shine brightly at all times. Mm-hmm. But apparently where if you just put a big umbrella over yourself as a vampire, it'll be totally fine. The sun doesn't reflect off of anything in this world, not even the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm willing to stretch in that regard, but it was, it was a little, uh, sometimes the rules of vampires were not always clear. Yeah. The rules. Okay. One of the things that this movie struggles with is the doling out of how its world works. Um, because this is not our world. Uh, it is, it is a hyper realized version of that world in which obviously vampires exist. Number one, but Vampires have existed for so long that they have also developed a union of vampire hunters, (laughs) seemingly quite a few, who go around and hunt said vampires for fun and profit uh, via their teeth, Uh, which I liked that. That was kind of neat that a vampire's teeth, uh, they kind of like have growth rings, and if you pull the teeth after death and and they've been around for a long time, then you get like more money because it's like a, an older and more powerful vampire. So, but how all of that gets spooled out and how that bureaucracy works. And it is a bureaucracy. Like they make a lot of jokes about how bureaucratic the system is um, for these vampire hunters. That's uh, I think things get really convoluted really quickly. And the film sort of just assumes that you kind of get it without really explaining anything. Yeah. And well, maybe it hopes that you do. It's like, we're just going to do this and try to keep up if you can. Right. Or maybe it hopes that you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go like, Oh, okay. I I get it. You know, like I don't need the details. I just, I understand that that's what it is or whatever, but it's, it's very strange because um, when the movie begins, Jamie Foxx's character is on the outs with this group. So he has sort of gone to be an independent vampire hunter who then sells his teeth on some kind of black market, which implies that these teeth are desirable outside of the fact that you're proving that you've killed a vampire, that there's something you can do with them that people would want. Um, which I, I don't, again, it's never really explained. Yeah, I don't understand why, why. <laughs> I mean, I guess from, theoretically, you might say, well, oh, because Peter Stormare is, is in this movie very briefly, um, in a lovely little Peter Stormare part that you would expect. I always like um, to see him in uh, anything. Always happy to see him. Yeah, anything. I don't care. Like, um He's, he's just universally wonderful in just about everything he does. And he's in this as kind of like a black market tooth dealer at a, at a pawn shop or something. <laughs> and so it's like, why? And, and like, and like there's this whole scene about Jamie Foxx, like feeling like he's getting stiffed. He needs money and the guy won't give him the money for the teeth. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? How are you going to take him to the union? And he's like, well, you know, I can't take him to the union, man. And, and, and it's like, why? Wait, what? Why? What does that mean? Why can't, 
So they'll only accept vampire teeth from vampires you've killed if you're a member of the union? Why? Wouldn't this they still sucks. be appreciative? <laughs> yeah, like it doesn't make any sense. And so, again, this is all right. So the vampire movie about, you know, vampires and the union that kills them, saying it needs to make sense, I know is absurd. Right? It's a silly thing to say. But if the movie's going to go to all this trouble to establish these underground societies that are, you know, bashing their heads together at the night in the night to, to, you know, for some reason, why, why? Right? I mean, and, and maybe that's, is the question that all movies should fundamentally think about answering is why? Yeah. Why is all this happening? You know, like, I guess again, to, to make the John Wick reference, this is what John Wick does, right? Like, you, you know, he, John Wick busts all the stuff up out of his his basement, he, and we find out that he's a member of this like ancient society of hit have hit persons, right? <laughs> and there are, and there's like secret places that they go to and little clubs where they can get jobs, and and like it spools out <laughs> its little jobs. like, <laughs> and it's like it, it spools out its story in this like clever way, and so you get this oh we're stepping into this larger world, and this movie is desperate to give you that same feeling. Right. Like, oh, we're we're, we've we've got this vast sort of underground thing. And maybe in day shift two, we'll go to the south of France. And there's another union guy there who's also (laughs) a ball buster, but he's just trying to kill the vampires. Right. And then maybe they'll wind up in Transylvania and there's like some some toll booth that they have to go pay teeth at or something. It's like, and it's like this movie wants to spiral out into this idea that there's this vast unknowable network of vampire hunters or something but it doesn't really hit that at all and instead it feels like there's just like four or five hundred people running around southern california just killing vampires willy-nilly and no one knows and no one has any idea that this is happening no one's ever been caught there's like this weird agreement because they even get into that a little bit later too uh where you know basically jamie fox and dave franco get paired up this and um and like franco knows all the rules right all the regulations and and he's trying to get jamie fox to like call the cops and he's like no we can't call the cops because then this will happen and this will happen and this will happen and that's why we can't do that we got to just go and and he's like oh no we're breaking all the rules man and it's like who came up with these yeah did, did people did people come up with them because these things happened and they didn't have i mean that's how most laws get created right those are where most regulations come from is that a bad thing happens nobody was prepared for it or kind of knew what to do so you create a regulation for when that thing happens again so you're telling me that this very specific situation that's just occurred (laughs) had happened at some point in the past and you guys had a regulation to deal with that future eventuality again so like Mm. again it these are the wrong questions to be asking about your silly vampire hunter movie, but But they're still questions that I had while I was watching. Right. Because they posed them. It's like, you didn't have to have this conversation, right? You, you realize you wrote the script. You started this. You can take it out of the script and put something else there. It's fine. Um, Or, or did you, did you forget the login for your laptop so you couldn't make edits <laughs> the screenplay and you just had to go with the one that you had? Was that what happened? It's like, oh, dude, I, I got to take it to the genius bar and get it reset. But I don't know if the copy of the script will be there. So this one I printed out, it's all we got. Sorry. Yikes. So I, I, it's, it's weird, you know. Uh, all right. So 
in saying all of that, which is still not a spoiler because there's way more crap in this movie. In saying all of that, I had some fun with this. This is this is a, a fun movie. The as you would expect from a director who comes from stunt work, the stunts are are pretty uniformly fantastic. Some of the filming of the stunts is a little herky jerky at times. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of modern stunt work is is storytelling, right? Trying to tell stories through the action and how you film it now. You know, like how these characters are sort of fighting each other is supposed to be endemic or representative of who they are as people, right? Like stunt work has gone on for long enough now and we've got such titans in the field, guys like Jackie Chan, who tell these very interesting stories through the fights, right? Where characters are being embarrassed or having something good happen or having something bad happen that that's kind of filtered its way down. And so there's a lot of that going on here, but it ends up sort of maybe in some cases taking away from some of the stunt scenes, in my opinion. Like it's it's just I agree sort with that. of... It, it just feels like at certain times the film kind of got away from the people making it just every once in a while. Um, so some of the convoluted subplots that we'll, we'll talk about Jamie Foxx has uh, family problems. He's in the midst of a divorce from his wife or they are divorced. I think they are divorced. Um, I, but he, you know, you know loves his I couldn't daughter. really tell, but I, I think he is. I, it feels like they are, but they still have like this sort of like co-parenting situation going on where he is trying to be involved in his daughter's life and go to her school stuff, pick her up, you know, that kind of thing. He's not like an absent dad, uh, which I thought was kind of good. You know, that was a nice, nice place to be. Um, that becomes sort of the primary motivator for Jamie Foxx. His wife is considering a move that would take him away from his daughter or take his daughter away from him, I guess I should say. And, and so he's trying to get enough money to sort of make sure that his family can stay close to him. So it's, it's a strong motivation. It's a good, understandable emotional anchor for this character in this crazy situation. Most of the, most of that plot gets like totally sidelined. It gets very heavy at the beginning tiny, tiny bits in the middle and then like really heavy at the end. But you know, it's, it's something that I, I kind of think could have been reworked because it doesn't really end up mattering much to the overall movement of the film. Um, but so there's that subplot. Then the main sort of antagonist vampire is some, she's like a real estate agent. She's a real estate agent. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, okay. That's a funny joke. Real estate agents kind of suck. So a real estate agent being like a vampire villain. Hilarious. But she's trying to bring vampires into California by buying up and building lots and lots of properties. And then I guess not selling them, but instead using them as like vampire houses. Because there's like this whole subplot thing about how you can tell it's a vampire house because all of the air conditioning, like they have like, like the first house that Jamie Foxx goes into has like four air conditioners outside. Which that... That was a little strange because I didn't know vampires needed to be cold. I thought they just needed to be in the darkness. In the dark. Yeah. It's, it's again, okay. Like, are you implying that vampires can't handle warm weather of any kind? Um, Because that seems, seems like you would, it would limit where you could exist quite a bit. Right. Um, Yeah. So it was just kind of weird. So there's, there's all this stuff going on about that, about like housing developments and vampire housing developments and, you know, bringing vampires in in secret, which again, I guess they would have to always be in secret, but people seem surprised about that. It's again, it's, 
the lore stuff was not really thought out in terms of this film. And no. so we'll, we'll get into some of those specific plot details as, as we go. But just know that if you do get into this film, I would encourage you to just sort of lean into the fun, goofy vampire action. And then when characters start talking about like all the stuff going on, feel free to like check your phone, right? Just pop open Twitter, yeah. scroll a bit. Um, Cause you're not going to be, you're going to be missing things anyway because the movie's not giving them to you. So you might as well just go full embrace and just like not worry about it. Right. Just like, they're going to be questions that you have. It's probably better that you just ignore those scenes and then just ignore the questions that they would inevitably create, Uh, which I know is a weird recommendation, but um, so I guess, you know, in terms of, of its performance, this film is sitting about a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is pretty accurate. I will say the audience score is a bit higher, 76%. But even 76% is a bit on the low side for a movie that was obviously packaged to be this sort of like, you know, viewer friendly, right? This movie, this is a movie that's designed to be like, hey man, this is cool, right? Like that's, that's its kind of whole purpose. Um, but it's it it doesn't necessarily work, right? So So before we get into spoilers... Where are you at in terms of recommending day shift? If you love vampires, definitely watch it. Because why not? Sure. But if you are the kind of person who is easily frustrated by movies that that have that scene missing problem, this may be may be a struggle however if you like snoop dog then suffer through it because he is great <laughs> yes um he he kind of disappears for the middle section of the film when nothing is when happening he returns, <laughs> when nothing's happening yeah um but when he returns for the the inevitable climactic finale he's he's pretty great pretty fantastic um but uh yeah i'm kind of in the same boat it, this is one of those qualified recommends. You've got to have some skin in the game before you start it or else I don't think you'll finish it. Yeah. Um, if you, if you really enjoy Jamie Foxx as a performer and you kind of miss when Jamie Foxx was allowed to just be funny and goofy, um, which I do a lot of times, like I, I always enjoyed Jamie Foxx's sort of pure comedy as problematic as it is in, in modern context. Um, and so, like, it's fun to see him having fun, if I can put it that way. Agreed. And it's obvious that he is. I mean, he's decked out in, like, cool Hawaiian shirts and stuff for this whole movie. Like, it's it's very much a vibe. Like, this is a this is a, a movie that's trying to hit a particular kind of, like, 90s Southern California vibe. And it gets there for the most part. Honestly, it just, it feels like playing Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. <laughs> like, that's what this movie feels like. Yeah. Like what with the needle drops, the the sun saturated visual palette. Like when the movie started, I was like, "Wait, is this the opening cutscenes of GTA San Andreas?" Yeah, like it just felt like that, you know. There's even some driving, driving scenes. There is. There are some driving scenes that could be construed as as uh, you know the the driving side missions. For GTA <laughs> San Andreas. Is this the block control mechanism? Mechanism. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it has a particular vibe. Uh, there's nothing incredibly surprising about it. I will say the stunt work is pretty exceptional. It's not all stellar across the board. Some of it's pretty standard, but 
there are some stunts in this that are truly, truly cool and very well done uh, and executed at a, at a very high level, which you would expect from the sort of bona fides of, of the directors, I think. But so if you like good stunt work, if, if vampires are enough for you, like if you just like vampire stuff, this is a kind of interesting take on vampire hunter stuff. Um, so there might be some things here that would do some stuff for you. Um, do we ever actually see a vampire like turn somebody? I don't think we no, do. No, no, none of that happens. No. no, like there's no like vampire turn. Like and we this, never this follow does a vampire. completely avoid sexy vampires. Yes, there are no sexy vampires in this. They're all pretty much just real estate agents and monsters. Yeah. Pretty much across the board. There's there's no like vampire in a tuxedo seducing a young woman at a party or something. Like this doesn't do any of that. Vampires are are very clearly painted as the antagonists for the most part. Um and 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 you know, fodder for our heroes to to murder in mass. Like that's pretty much it. So so if you want sexy vampire relationships, right? If you were team Edward, eh, I don't, I don't know if this movie's going to be for you, but if you were team Jacob, <laughs> maybe, then I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. That <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So hard, hard to say, but uh, this is, so this is a qualified recommend, right? If, if there are some things about this movie that would interest you, then I think there's enough here that you'll get some fun out of it. And it's like hour and 50 minute runtime. But if none of those things interest you, like don't really care about Jamie Foxx as a performer or Snoop as a performer. Um, don't really love like nineties gangster rap. Don't really care about the SoCal vibe. Eh, there's not a lot here for you. Yeah, really. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, if any one of those things is mildly interesting to you, then, you know, you're probably, probably going to be able to get something out of this that's pretty good i will say my my daughter who's 13 she was just walking through as earlier today as i was reviewing some scenes and she's like what's this and and i mean i was just like oh it's this movie about vampires whatever and and so she like left and she circled right around she went to the kitchen got a drink came back into my office and sat down in the other chair was like oh let's watch it (laughs) oh i'm just I'm just reviewing it. Like I'm not going to watch the whole thing right now. And she was like, Oh, I want to check this out. So it's like, Oh, all right, we can watch it later. It's fine. So, so she was interested enough, but, um, but she doesn't ha- really have a ton of experience with any of these things. So they, they may have hit her in such a way that it's like, I've never seen anything like this before. I don't really know what that nineties Southern California, you know, vibe was, you know, and, and stuff. So in any case, uh, Maybe in those strange scenarios where you just don't really have a connection to any of that stuff, maybe you'd find something here too. But so qualified recommend, um, middle of the road recommend for me. It's it's a it's it's a Robert Frost recommendation. We've we've met at two paths in the wood. Which one will you take? Right? Yeah. Um, uh, I can't recommend it unless you know you've got some some background to sort of push you to the left or to the right. Uh, okay, so let's let's get into spoilers. Let's talk about some of the the aspect of the film that uh, you know some stuff that works, and some stuff that doesn't, right? So we we open with uh, Jamie Fox, our our titular pool man, right? A pool man in Southern California. They're everywhere. Totally common. You would never even give them a second look, and that's the point, right? Which again, a lot of little jokes, a lot of visual jokes in this. All of these vampire hunters have day jobs which i think is kind of funny i kind of wish that we had stayed with that a little bit if we had seen 
we'd had maybe just one more scene of average Joe vampire hunting in plain sight. Because it introduced that and then it it dropped it in favor of all the other shit the movie had to get out of the way. Um, exactly. Which So that, that made me a bit sad because I really like that idea of, you know, vampire hunters who also just have to blend in and be regular people. You know, not, they're not Van Helsing. Yeah, totally. Um, like, I was thinking about it as, as we were getting ready. I really think this movie would have done well. Instead of him, like, you know, he needs the money. So, you know, they need to establish that teeth equals money for the hunters. Okay, so I, I get that. So he goes to the the pawn shop and whatever, and he's talking to Peter Stormare, and he's trying to get more money for the teeth. But now it's like, oh, do I need to sell my guns? Do I need to? Which again, just seems like, wait, what? Why would you sell your guns? Like, you're, that's the way that you're going to get more teeth. Why would you do that? Um, so, like, the film immediately starts introducing complications on Jamie Foxx's character that he can't really deal with, and we don't understand given how much we know. It would have been much better for him to go to the pawn shop, maybe get a little resistance, a little haggling over the teeth, an extra thousand here, a couple thousand here. But then he goes out and he's like, well, shit, I just need to, I need to go kill more vampires, right? So then maybe we see him hunting a vampire. How does he identify them, right? Because none of that happens. Maybe that's when he calls up Big John and says, Big John, you got any leads, right? Anybody I can go take down, um, somebody you don't want to deal with, right? And and then maybe we get like the smaller community of vampire hunters before we get immediately introduced to like the hundreds of vampire hunters who sit in an underground office building and drink bad coffee and go out for deli <laughs> meats. It's like, wait, we've we've gone so far past where we were. Like, you know, and again, I think it's the John Wick problem. And this is my issue with the John Wick movies as well, is I think John Wick 3 is starting to strain too far, right? Even two, where like he goes to a different hotel, you know, a continental in a different country, and there's like, a sommelier, right? Or sommelier who's got all these different guns that he can taste like wine, right? It's like, okay, all right, guys. Yeah, that's, that's very clever. And I love Peter Serafinowicz as much as anybody else. <laughs> but like, <laughs> we don't need all of this, right? Like, yeah. stop it, you know? And, and so, like, this movie does that, but it took John Wick a couple of movies to get to that point. This one is like, within 15 minutes, we're there. And it's like, can't we just see a dude hunting vampires in Southern California as a fake pool man? Like, I, I think I'm fine with that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really, the scale of it just blows up very quickly in a way that it didn't really need to. Cause I'll be honest, like the whole union stuff, it doesn't matter for the movie. Like they do nothing for them over the course of the film, apart from force Jamie Foxx to team up with Dave Franco. That's the only like actual result on the plot for the whole film. And there were probably a bunch of other ways you could have done that. It, sure. it you know, felt he's like an independent auditor or something. It felt that like they send the union to... thing was strictly to set up more films. Yes, this is this is their sequel bait material. This is how they're going to get Jamie Foxx to other places in the world. You know, like that's that's what this is. It's the the underpinning world that they can expand upon in future sequels, even though. I think just a dude hunting vampires in Southern California is fine. Like, yeah. Why do you need why do we need to go elsewhere or do more like there's no need to scale this up? 
Maybe he goes for a weekend in Baja. And Fire's <laughs> like, who cares, right? Like, what difference does it make? So, yeah, it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird escalation. So I guess we should talk about the union. So he tries to sell the teeth to the pawnbroker guy. He gets stiffed, doesn't get as much money for them as he knows he would get if he were with the union. And he needs the money. What is happening? Does does the family need it for the house? It's for the daughter's tuition and for oh, her yeah. braces. And it would oh, prove yeah. to the wife that he's not a bad guy and they won't move away. That's right. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I was trying to remember that. I was like, wait, again, I, no it, no registration in my mind of why he actually needed all this money. But yeah, that's right. She needs braces and they can't afford them, even though they live in like a super nice house in in California, which is like, dude, like there's no way. If you can't afford braces, there's no way you can afford that house. Yeah, you there's can't even no afford way. to keep the lights on in that house. Yeah. Like that's an eight hundred and fifty thousand dollar house, easy. I'm, <laughs> I, no you know, <laughs> I bet it's more because I, yeah. I just, uh, that took me out of so, it a little bit, and also like the braces and tuition. I get that it was more like proving himself, right, to prove that he's going to be there for her as a dad. But those things ended up being so pointless and so silly that I'm, I kind of wonder if it was necessary to have that happen at all. Um, especially considering what happens with the family drama by the end of the movie. Right. So his, his family situation is that he's estranged from his wife. He's still trying to be a good dad. And, and I will admit the scenes with Jamie Foxx and the, the young girl they had playing his daughter, very charming, very, very charming. Uh, the little girl was great. I mean, it, it, in terms of child actors, I thought she did a good job for the most part maybe played a little bit too sassy at times, but you can tell whoever was writing, it was trying to have like good banter between the dad and the daughter, that their relationship is strong kind of thing. So most of those scenes were great. Jamie Foxx is, is a consummate performer. I mean, the man is, is very, very good at what he does. Um, in, in many ways, he's extremely Tom Cruise esque. I don't think he's good at doing all kinds of things, but the things he is good at, he is capable of doing better than anybody else. Um, yeah. And so, like, I, I, I enjoyed their banter. I enjoyed the, the sort of wittiness back between them a lot. And so, like, I cared about the daughter in that situation. But the setup the, didn't work. Yes, it doesn't work. And the and those concerns are so small compared to the vampire concerns that were introduced to it. Yeah. Like, that's the big part of it is that. Eventually, it's revealed that vampires are trying to literally take over Southern California to to outpopulate Southern California and turn it into like a vampire paradise, I guess, which I don't know. Again, if you can't survive in the sun and heat is bad for you, why would you live in Southern California? Why would I, you ever I want to live know. in Southern California? <laughs> like that that core idea is never explained. Um, the real estate market in Southern California is literally terrible. So if you're a real estate agent trying to make money off of people, I don't think that's a good place to do it in that way. And again, like the whole, the whole subplot of like the vampire invasion is so absurd and so underdeveloped that it's just dropped on us that, oh, we're, we're developing these housing developments to put vampires in them. Like, okay. okay. 
Um, sure. All right. Wouldn't like, I mean, like, okay. So here's where we have to get a look. I don't like a vampire shit. Okay. We've established this, but the one piece of vampire shit that I've really liked in the last, I know exactly what you're going to say <laughs> is, is 30, 30 days, days of night. Of night. <laughs> 30 days of night is some great vampire shit. It's, it's a perfect vampire story because it makes sense for what the vampires would do. No, it has, it, I'm not talking about the sequels. The sequels went, and I'm not bananas, talking about the but, movie. And I definitely am not talking about that. Josh Hartnett led piece of shit movie that David Yates made or David Bad. Slade, whatever his name is. Bad. Um, I've watched it more times than I care to admit, just because I love 30 days of night so much that I want desperately to watch it again and then be like, no, this isn't as bad. This is fine. And then I watch it and I'm like, no. It's like how you no. tell yourself you like shrimp every time you're at a buffet. And no, you don't. You don't like shrimp. <laughs> no. But you're going to get some every time and hope it's different. Every time. Just hope it's different this time. And then it won't be. And I'll be sad. And I've got all these little tears <laughs> on my plate. And I feel terrible. Uh, yeah, 30 Days of Night is good shit. And if you've never seen 30 Days of Night, uh, or, or I would say read 30 Days of Night, which that's what you should do is read the original comic by Steve, uh, Steve Niles, uh, 30 Days of Night. Um, it is about a group of vampires who go to Barrow, Alaska, one of the northernmost points in the, in the continental United States. They, they go to Barrow, Alaska, because for 30 days at the beginning of the year, or I think, yeah, um, it is completely dark there. So they can run amok there uncontested they never have to go and hide they never have to hide from the sun and it's about these people surviving for 30 days in this environment uh, against these vampires and it's brilliant it's it's one of the best things ever uh in terms of vampire storytelling and when i know that kind of stuff is out there that's really thoughtful about like what would a vampire's motivations be how can we write something that plays into what the vampire's strengths are and gives them an, a, a leg up, you know, it, it removes one of the ways in which vampires are normally dealt with in these stories. Changes the whole game, like the whole game. And it's great. Um, so this one, not so much. Doesn't really think through it in that way. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. It's, it's not trying to be. Maybe they thought that would be funny. Are. Yeah. There's a lot of like weird things here that I think if you, and I'm not from Southern California, um, but there's a lot of stuff here that I think are Southern California in jokes, right? Like the shitty real estate agents, right? Who are, are actually monsters, right? Like I, I get that. That's a good joke, right? I mean, if you've ever bought real estate, you know, they're all like conniving thieves. Um, but it's, it's one of those like, it's one of those things. If you don't have that full context, you're not necessarily going to get those jokes. And much like many of the details in this movie, it's just going to fly right by you. And, and that's, you know, it's a risk, but I suppose that it's, it's something that, you know, you're going to do if you think your audience is going to pick up on it. But so we've got the Jamie Foxx family stuff, right? He's trying to get money so that his kids, his wife knows, ex-wife knows that he's going to be a good dad and they can afford to you know, continue to co-parent in the current fashion. But it seems like a real, like, sort of Damocles kind of thing, right? Because, again, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, like, okay, so he gets the braces for this one, right? He, pay, he ponies up the five grand or whatever he needs for the tuition and the braces. Then there's just going to be something else, 
right? There's going to be another test down the road, you know? So like the whole contrivance of I need the money right now so that my daughter doesn't leave me kind of thing just really never really hit home. And it seemed like there had been a ton of ways to build this up, that there is a time crunch, something that's forcing him, motivating him to take more risks, to, you know, try and get back into the union, whatever. seems like there could have been better ways to approach that. You know, maybe, you know, the uh, most obvious one was that the wife can't afford the house and the house is about to get foreclosed on. Yeah, forcing them to move. Yeah, like we're going to be forced to move out of the valley. We can't afford to live here. The house is getting foreclosed on. The only way I'm going to be able to afford it is if you help me pay. Right. And he's like, all right, we'll do it. That would have been much simpler and and had greater impact and probably wouldn't have been as forgettable. It feels like it. I mean, because that's that's also a relatable scenario. Like that's a scenario that, you know, unfortunately, probably a lot of people have tangentially either had happened to them or someone they know that, hey, I'm getting behind in my bills. I, I can't make rent, you know, whatever. That's that's a very relatable thing. And it's a thing that is an immediate motivator to go and do whatever you can do to get money. Right. And and it might have been funny. There could have been a cool scene where Jamie Foxx is like going through his apartment trying to like find stuff to sell. Right. And maybe he's got all these this weird vampire hunting shit that he's going to try and get rid of. And, you know, so we get the joke of him going to the vampire pawn shop or whatever and he's like, oh, what about this, you know, stake thrower 3000? And he's just like throwing weapons down that he's trying to unload because he doesn't use them anymore or something. Lots of room there for them to to establish that there's a time crunch, a money crunch, and then use that to their advantage. But again, they seem so desperate to get into this bureaucratic union shit that they just get lost in it immediately. And then whoever went and thought through how this union would operate did a really shitty job. Yeah. In my opinion, like I just don't think it works. So, so let's, let's talk about the union. So he tries to sell at the pawn shop, gets stiffed on the teeth, takes the, what money he can get. And then, um, needs more. So he call is that he calls up big John and he says, big John, uh, played by Snoop Dogg, whose introduction is fantastic. He plays this like cowboy, old vampire hunter, cowboy vampire, who drives a Dodge Ram. The biggest Dodge Ram. It's so good. And and he, you know, I mean, he might as well be wearing spurs and like carry a silver 45 on his hip. Like it's just. It Snoop Dogg so is so perfect for what this guy is like. It's when you when you think about writing a part for an actor, I cannot help but think whoever was writing this part was like, oh, we're going to get Snoop for this. Like no, and there was no other option on the table for who this was going to be cast to because the part is perfectly him. It's he's slow talking, laconic, confident, cool, relaxed. He's cool like a he's cowboy. Cool. He's so cool, and and so like he calls him, and then Big John is basically going to sponsor him back into the union after he got kicked out, which he got kicked out for what breaking rules, like he was. Just causing mayhem, right? Like a bunch of messes to clean up kind of thing. So they kicked him out of the union. And he's been doing his like independent vampire hunting ever since. This is where it tries to go a little bit buddy cop. Yes. And you're a loose cannon. <laughs> you're, you're a loose cannon, Jamie Foxx. I can't have you running around the streets of Los Angeles 
causing this kind of mayhem. Like, yeah, like it was there. There's literally a conversation in this. Yeah, movie. it's it's a give me your badge and your gun. You're 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 done. Um, give me your give me your union ID card. I and, guess and like that might last be, six months of dues. Maybe it should have been something more like a, a vampire hunter force, but then they had to have the the market attached to it for the money subplot. I guess, yeah. So they turned it into a union instead, which I, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't. I don't get it. I I love when stories try to work inane bureaucracies into these sort of crazy supernatural situations, right? If anything, that's one of the that's one of the magic pieces of the formula that kind of makes Ghostbusters work is that they figured out a way for people to become so bored with the process of catching ghosts that we get the scene of Ray just like with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He takes West of the base. He's like, you put the trap in, you press the button, you pull the trap. You know, he's yeah. like, you just caught ghosts, dude, right? Like you have done something that no human being has ever done before. And you're so inert and bored with the entire process that you can barely be bothered to explain well, it. And like, you know, it's it's Janine on the phone going, well, don't go in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, then just don't use that room. I mean, what's the problem? It's so I, I like it when movies try and do this. Right. And again, that's something that that John Wick has mostly successfully done. It's implied that. You know, being a hitman is part of this like ancient order and code, and you've got all these rules, and the rules can be broken. Like all of that kind of stuff can be a very interesting sort of sub world to explore. But this one takes it in this like this union is basically the IRS. That's what it felt like. It's or or the DMV. Like it felt like the DMV. Yeah. You know, and I, I again maybe that's a SoCal DMV joke. Which, okay, but like if you just look at the production design, it's it's all very understated. It's all very like 80s Dallas boardrooms with big heavy desks and CRT monitors. And, just, and people have know, like mullets and stuff and they're wearing blazers with big shoulder pads. It's weird. Yeah, it's conf- the production design feels confused at this level like it just doesn't feel like they kind of know what they want out of this look because yeah like the main bureaucrat the guy that doesn't want jamie fox to be is terrible he's awful i hate every scene that he's in one they put him in this this i'm almost gonna say it's a red wig like it it felt like the color of annie's hair (laughs) and it's obviously not his hair like not even close. The rest of his facial hair is like dark brown and gray. So he, I guess we're supposed to feel that he's kind of this like preening moron that would wear this like mullet toupee. Um, but his his office is just filled with files and filing cabinets and all of this like inane stuff that doesn't make sense. He's dressed horribly. They try to use the, the the scene with him to give background on Jamie Foxx's exploits again to try and like paint him as a badass vampire. They can't even really do stuff. that. But it doesn't work. Like none of this works. And 
I just, I don't think that this, this was a good thing to introduce at this level, right? I think it would have been much better to keep things at a bit of arm's length and then just spool it out slowly. But we get hit with all kinds of stuff very quickly. And I don't, none, none of this works. Not for me. Like, I, I'm not interested in this bureaucracy. I don't understand what they do. Like, what does this union provide other than leads on vampires to go kill, which seems like Jamie Foxx has been capable of doing on his own for a while. And then they provide money when you turn in their teeth and apparently pay the best rate. But they never say for what. They never explain any further. Like, I guess it would have been more interesting or more compelling if they had combined this black market that he visits first with some kind of shadow organization and just left it a bit more ambiguous. If they didn't try to have like the buddy cop loose cannon thing, like it's, it's funny. That's funny, I guess, but it just wasn't fully formed. It felt like this, this just wasn't thought through all the way. Yeah, I, no, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say that about a lot of the major subplots or or even just the plot of this film is that this this film feels like they are straining and struggling to get to the next action sequence. But yet at the same time, they meander to get there, right? Yeah, it's like the action sequences are where this film feels strongest by far. And they seem desperate to want to get to the next one of those. But yet we keep getting bogged down with all this stuff. Um, and it just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't understand why, right? If the point of these, of these scenes is to get Jamie Foxx paired up with the pencil pusher nerd, that's going to make him do his job better or something. I don't think we needed all of this, right? And there seems like you just, you know, all you have to do is have Dave Franco show up at his house and say, I'm from the home office or something or from the union office. And I'm here to job shadow you for the next three days or something. And like, if you want to continue being an independent vampire hunter, you have to let me evaluate you or, or something like, again, they're making up these rules. They don't, I mean, like make up rules that suit the story better than this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand why they have to, to go through all of these histrionics to try and get us to a relatively simple buddy cop premise. You know, like, well, and if it, it seems like like they're they're doing it, you know, to get to the next action scene. But they feel like the audience wants this. They're like, you you want this story. You want us to tell a story. Right. So here it is. This is the best we could right. do. It's <laughs> like, you don't have yep, to do that. I'm actually fine. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm good. Just seeing Jamie Foxx be a vampire hunter. It's it's totally OK. Um, so as we've hinted at, basically by the end of this, this scene, the only way they're going to let Jamie Foxx back into the union is if they have, he has like an oversight individual with him, uh, at all times to keep track of him. And I think we assume it's going to be big John at the start, but then, you know, that's not where they go. And so we're introduced to Dave Franco's character and for the life of me, I cannot remember his name. Um, I'm going to go with. Steve Booger, maybe. Um, <laughs> I mean, it could have Seth. been anything. No, Seth. Ah, yes, Seth. Um, much better. It's a much better name. Um, Booger. So, 
I'll be the first to say that there is a lot of like weird background jokes. Like for example, they've got Dave Franco works at the booth where they pay the money for the teeth. Right. And they make this whole, again, I don't know why office humor is, is a big part of this, but they spend a lot of time with Dave Franco, like being mad at the person that sits next to him for eating his yogurt from the shared communal fridge or something or from his lunchbox. And she just doesn't respond. And they obviously thought it was really funny to have Dave Franco. And what's the tag on the scene? I think, doesn't he say like, I'm going to fart in that yogurt next time and you're going to eat my farts. Yes. I think is the joke. That is yes. the joke that he makes. Yes. That very memorable Dave Franco joke where he says he's going to fart in yogurt so that she'll eat his farts. It's, it's very good. It's high quality humor. Um, it's, it was written and punched up. They probably got Pat Oswalt to, uh, to punch that up and give it a, a real zing, real zinger on the back end from Dave Franco. And uh, yeah, it's bad. It's just bad. It's all bad. Silly humor. And it doesn't really need to exist. Um, so they, they examine the teeth. They don't, they still don't give him very much money for it. And, and you know, the, the story continues. So this is really about Jamie Foxx getting screwed over for teeth. That's really, that's really what this movie's all about. <laughs> and, and he's a better dental plan. But I do like that in that scene, if I remember right, there's like a dude in like a deli outfit on the other end of the counter. So you can presume that this dude who works in some kind of deli is also a vampire hunter and has come to sell teeth. And like, that's an interesting idea. And why didn't the movie stay with that? No, it's just a background joke, right? Something that you can remember along with Dave Franco's joke about farts. It's very, very funny. Instead, they try to do this, this, um, uh, the office kind of of off the cuff ad libbed yeah. scene of Dave Franco talking about his yogurt, and I just hate that in movies. I hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who is just, who is the it, guy who writes those movies? <laughs> Was it Paul Feig? Uh, Paul Feig does a lot of that. Yeah, I hate a lot it. Of Paul Feig comedies where they just kind of let them riff in twelve or fifteen different takes. It and sucks. They just pick Parts of them that work. Yeah, it's it's the Melissa McCarthy approach. Hate it. To uh, to humor uh, instead of writing. I just, just want everybody to shut say, up. <laughs> just you say it. funny things and hope that you get something that makes people laugh. That's it. Mm. So Seth gets assigned as Jamie Foxx's uh, supervisor, I guess, uh, with his new his new encounters. And so he comes over to his house. We get to see Jamie Foxx's like process. He makes custom bullets. And, and again, all of this just feels like John Wick. Like it just, it's bad John Wick where he's like got this, he's this highly technical hunter who puts like, what does he put like salt in the bullets or something? It's trying to take know. like every goofy vampire trope about what kills them from the history of vampires and just cram it all in one. Yes. And, and he does it all right. All of his weaponry is designed to to hurt and kill vampires and he's I guess we're supposed to think that he's like just better at this than everybody else and he's just misunderstood or something but this scene doesn't do anything to to really forward that notion um it's just I don't know it none of none of this stuff really worked for me at all as they're trying to get together but so the story develops. Franco starts going with him. Jamie Foxx immediately starts breaking rules and trying to get James Franco to cover them. 
the the big reveal is that crazy real estate lady, the vampire that Jamie Foxx killed at the beginning, uh, who was the super old lady, was her daughter, who she left behind in the old country. <laughs> the old vampire and country. The old vampire country. And when she went back for her, by the time she got there, she was an old woman. So she turned her, but she turned as an old woman, but it was still her daughter, even though the real estate agent is a young woman. So that's like the, it's a twist, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, sure, whatever. So she's now on a a rampage of vengeance to to kill the vamp to kill the vampire hunter that killed her daughter. And um, so he left a bit of blood at the scene because glass. And they're able to use that blood to track him, right? And so they find the pawn shop guy, Peter Stormare, torture him for his name, and then, you know, the vampires are coming for him. And that's sort of the back half of the movie. That's the danger is that they know who he is. They know what he did. So they're coming for him. Obviously his family gets involved and I, I, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with this. Like these are all like really standard movie trope things, you know, but at the same time, the movie just handles them really laconically. Like when he finds out that the vampires are coming for him, he doesn't really seem that concerned. Yeah. You know, he's just, He's just um, like, oh, yeah, that sucks. But I got a lot of locks on my door, so I guess I'll be fine. I'm like, dude, there's a fucking window right next well, to Well, and we've repeatedly <laughs> seen vampires crush walls and doors and cars. And I don't, like, I just don't think the locks on the door are going to do that much. <laughs> no, no. There's, he's got several of them. If it was just one, that would be inadequate security. But just, you know, you put a, a bar across it and they'll be fine. Um, so then ostensibly we get where we, my feeling was, is that when he goes vampire hunting with Seth in the car, I'm like, this should have, I mean, cause when that happens, understand that that is 55 minutes into the movie, right? Is 55 minutes, an hour into the film before Jamie Foxx goes on his first union sanctioned vampire hunt. Um, well, I guess, no, there was the one, maybe he doesn't, he go into a bowling alley the first day that they meet and he kills yes. a bunch of like, and we have, vampires. we have our first pee pee joke for Dave Franco where he, that's he, right. He pee pees himself. He pees himself. Yep. And they spend a long time riffing on the peeing himself where it's like, okay, a couple of jokes is one thing, but you're, no, you're but apparently his. Yeah. You're spending a lot his of urine. screen time on this. His urine has a strong smell <sighs> that apparently is very, very, uh, it's, it's very powerful. But yeah, so we, we do see him kill some vampires there and that scene's fine. There's, you know, it's in a bowling alley. It's a good setup. Um, they're supposed to be like teenage vampires. So they're like all in athletic jackets and, and cheerleaders and shit. And so, like, they're slowly unraveling the plot here that, you know, there are sort of, like, record numbers of vampires being converted and stuff. But then we get Dave Franco, who is supposed to be the most knowledgeable vampire 
hunter because he works for the bureaucracy. He starts laying out that there are different kinds of vampires. This lost me completely. And yeah, I was like, wait, what? So not only are there vampires, but there are different like clans of vampires, right? And it's okay. You know, I've played Masquerade Bloodlines on, on PC, right? And I know that in vampire fiction, it's pretty common to have like, oh, these are the well, it, to make another Twilight reference, these are the Volturi. Right? <laughs> these are the these are the ancient no. vampires, and then and then these are the slummy vampires. They like wear jeans and shit. You know, it's like I get it, and but this movie has its own version of this, and it seems much more complicated. And then it doesn't explain any of it. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of presents it all as. This is this is just how things are. This is the way the world works. This we understand this. And and then later it becomes like a significant plot point where they're like using this information to understand that something big is happening in the vampire world. Like groups who would normally never associate are associating now. They're living together, they're working together, you know, all of this stuff. And it's like these are just layers of complexity we don't need, right? Like yeah. it doesn't need to be there. And if it's world building for a sequel, great, but save it for the freaking sequel. Yeah. Right. Like we don't need it for this story. And all it does is slow things down and make things more complicated. And all it does is make me angry. It just, it doesn't work. And, and again, it's the world building that unfortunately people think they need to tell a good story these days, right? It's, it's like, you know, they're, it's like the part of the story Bible where they're like, Oh, these are, you know, appendices one through 18. And here we're going to explain like all of these choices that basically come down to their vampires. It's like, yeah, we, we get it. We knew that. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> but like, what's an that uber vampire? Intuitively. What's an East Eastern vampire? I mean, they had all these Eastern different vampires. kinds of vampires, but then they didn't really explain what the difference was. I, I do know that Seth becomes an uber vampire because he can't basically be killed. Like he even gets his head cut off at a certain point and he doesn't die. Why he's an uber vampire. Not sure if that was fully explained. And if it was, it was a stupid explanation, but you know, whatever. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit. I mean, we don't have to go through this scene, this film scene by scene. It's really not worth it. But needless to say, a lot of the world building kind of falls flat. It doesn't really come together in any significant way and feels very transparently like a group of screenwriters trying desperately to set up a world rich enough that they can tell more stories. When my advice to them would be like, you realize how many Hellraiser movies they've made, right? Yeah. Like you realize how many... Halloween movies there are. You realize how many Friday the 13th movies there are. Those are the thinnest premises in the world, and they've been able to spin those things out for years. Now, granted, the quality goes down with every entry, most of the time. But still. Well, the bar is already set pretty low for a Netflix movie. But it, It's low, But dude. it does make I mean, me wonder, like, in these scripts, when they try to sell them to... A, a streaming outlet or, or when, when these deals come up, is there a board meeting along the line where somebody says, where are you going to demonstrate future projects right. that can generate revenue? And so I wonder what how many potential. Yeah, yeah. What's our potential? 
And I wonder how many scripts are edited on that basis. I, for somebody like Netflix that is just looking for content pieces, I have to think that that is an essential part of the package being thrown, right? Like, and, and given the, the, the bona fides of the people that made this, right? Chad Stahelski is one of the exec producers. I, I have to see it being like, this is the vampire John Wick. Like, I can't, why would you not pitch it that way? Right? Because any executive is going to be like, wait, did I hear John Wick? Those made money. <laughs> they just hear those, cash those, register those sounds. Made, those made a lot of money. Money. Like, I recognize, I recognize the name of that thing. And I know that that thing made money. And, and like, I just, I, it's so transparent in its approach. And it's like, I applaud the efforts, right? Because as a writer myself, I understand the need and the desire to take your cool ideas and continue fleshing them out and sort of understanding where they come from. But if you look at some of the really good franchises that have been able to spin out these sort of like larger stories and bigger worlds, it's because you kind of make smart decisions about what to withhold and what to reveal, right? What kind of pieces are going to tantalize an audience to think, oh, what's just around that corner? And what kind of, you know, reveals are going to satisfy them enough that they still feel like they've, they've started to understand this larger concept. And, and this movie just sort of fails on, on doing that. Most of it comes in the form of very forced exposition dumps, usually from Dave Franco, which, sure. I mean, if you Nothing, want to give all of your exposition to Dave Franco, well, I guess go it ahead. It just doesn't sound very authoritative coming from him. And it also implies that Jamie Foxx doesn't know this stuff. Yeah. Right. I mean, like that's the that was the backhanded part of it was that Jamie Foxx, as a seemingly veteran, highly skilled vampire hunter, is constantly being expositorily spoken to about the nature of vampires. Yeah. And I was like, why are we talking about this? He would know. Right. If anything, you know? it would have been better if, you know, if you've got to have the stupid codes and rule book, yes, make what's his face, the authority on that. But it would have been better if all of the knowledge of vampires came from Jamie Foxx. That would I have mean, made more it, sense. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and maybe he has little, like, cool pet names for him and shit. And maybe like, instead of this money crisis, he goes back to join the union because he feels like something big is happening because he's noticed all this stuff, you know, there's just, just little things like a really, really good plot for an action movie. As we can see from like it being done literally millions of times is the guy on the outside who has a different perspective than all the people on the inside who recognizes Mm -hmm. that there is something happening that nobody sees. Right. Like think of all of the stories where that is the basic plot point of of the film is that, you know, hey, you guys can't see this pattern developing that I can see because I'm on the outside looking in like that's that's fine. Like that's enough. And and maybe then he goes back to the union, not in this position of weakness where he's like, oh, God, I need somebody to give me money for my daughter's orthodontic appointment, you know. And now it's like, no, you guys don't understand. Like, you just really don't understand how bad this is going to get. Like, then, and you don't understand what I've seen. And yeah, it just, it, 
it places our hero in this position of weakness more often than I would expect. And, and again, just exposition's really hard. Okay. I like, I want to throw that out there. I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like I'm, I'm not giving these guys credit. Exposition information and, and providing exposition to the audience is literally one of the biggest challenges of a write of, of any writing, especially screenwriting. But the exposition that is delivered in this movie doesn't make sense. No. And in how it's done, right? Because our characters should be well aware of all of these scenarios and situations. If anything, more aware than the pencil pusher guy who works in the bureaucracy. But regardless, um, the, the sort of highlight scene of the film is this extended action sequence in a sort of tracked home that is being developed by this crazy real estate lady, wherein there are just vampires everywhere, just coming out of the walls. Um, and uh, we, we get introduced to another set of vampire hunters, uh, the Naziri brothers, mm-hmm. um, something like that. Nazarian? Nazarian. Yeah, that sounds right. And um, this was weird. This because... One of the Nazarian brothers is Scott Atkins, who if, if you if you watch a lot of like really bad action movies, um, like the cheap ones that get like thrown under the red box and shit, uh, then you've you've seen Scott Atkins. Scott Atkins has made all kinds of movies. He's very famous in stunt circles. He's a great stunt man who has now sort of begun to get his own projects and to be his own sort of lead, mostly in projects that he's developed, right? So this is a movie by stuntmen made for stuntmen and, and stunt people as, as actors. And, and so it's great to see Scott Adkins in a production like this. Cause he's normally like in, you know, winds of war, you know, a, a guy who comes home from war is upset about things and fights people. You know, it's like, it's a really simple, very basic sort of cable direct to video <laughs> type, type movies. Um, so he's one of the Nazarian brothers, and then the other one. Uh, well, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you tell us who the other one is. Um, because I, I think it impacted you just as much as I just kept me. looking at this dude's dumb face for the whole scene that he was in, and I'm like, I know you. I know you. What the fuck were you on? And I even said it out loud, and I realize now that I was saying it to my partner, who would have no idea, because this is the dude. From CW's uh, classic at this point TV classic. show, yes. Reba. Um, yeah, the the football playing the boyfriend, uh, the the daughter's yeah. boyfriend on Reba, the dumb one, the dumb, like the 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 really dumb one. Um, and uh, yeah, apparently he hasn't done a ton of acting. And so he was really excited to get this, and and dude is dude dude dude's beefy, dude dude beefed up. Well, like, he played a football some... player, so yeah, yeah, you know, you fall into that role on Reba, that that paves the way for the rest of your life. You get to play the dim-witted beefcake. <laughs> you get into the Reba McIntyre circle of success, and you know, you just she makes your career. Gonna go. That's Reba. <laughs> That's right, Reba. Uh, so the Nazarian brothers, uh they get this extended action sequence. It's, it's very, it's very fast. Um, 
a lot of really interesting stunt work here. A lot of people falling off ledges, a lot of decapitations, um, a lot of, again, uh, great contortionist work. There's a shot where uh, a vampire is jumping off an upper ledge and Jamie Foxx blows its leg off with a shotgun and the momentum from the shotgun hit flings the body forward. And so it hits kind of faced first and then flips over itself, like again, pretzeling in this weird kind of way. And, you know, just my only caveat with this scene was that (laughs) I felt like what kills a vampire is sort of all over the place. Yes. How do you kill a vampire? Um, Like what is, and why is it different for all of the vampires? Like sometimes maybe it's because they were an Eastern. Vampire maybe you have to shoot them in the kneecaps where instead of the face, I just, I left that conflict wondering <sighs> how come some of them die from shotgun blasts to the leg. Cause that vampire died. The one yes. that he shot in the leg, yeah. <laughs> but then other ones have to get stabbed and shot like 19 times before they go down and then they have to get their heads cut off. Yeah, there's a shot where he puts a machete inside one of the vampire's necks and then spins it around the neck in a way that doesn't seem to observe the laws of physics in any way possible. And then that spinning motion removes enough flesh from the neck that he can then just kind of pop the head off or something along those lines. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, that seemed relatively complicated to kill that vampire. Other ones, you just sort of give them a little shoot. And then another guy he shoots in the back as he tries to run away out into the sun, mind you. Now, he did have the sunscreen on because that's the other thing we find out is that the vampires in order to survive <laughs> in stupid. Southern California <laughs> have developed a sunscreen. What's it made of? I'm trying to remember. It's made of some weird thing. Um, it's like. Um, uh, there's some like. There's some elder vampire gods, so a little bit of blade action that they're trying to worship. But like they they've figured out how to make some kind of 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 skin protectant, but it uses something awful, and I just cannot remember it for the life of me what it's made of. But it's something gross, and and so they're like trying to restore this ancient order of vampires or something. And and they figured out that they're this is how they're going to survive in Southern California is, is with this weird sunscreen. So they shoot that guy in the back, and he just kind of gets up and runs away, even though other vampires have just died from shotgun blasts of similar type. Yeah. And, you know, again, there's excellent stunt work, a lot of sword work, which, again, you don't see a ton of, but the Nazarian brothers use swords, um, so there's quite a bit there. Um, I don't know. It's just... it's. It's a great action sequence and, and probably the highlight of the film in terms of stunt work uh, for me. But at the same time, it's also like it poses a lot of problems. Like there are things in it that you could tell they wanted to do because they would be cool or look cool that don't necessarily hang with the remainder of yeah you know what the story's trying to do. It lacked consistency. Right. And... You know, so then there's there's a big chase scene that we mentioned earlier um, where they really feel like they just want to get their Terminator to, you know, chase through the L.A. River out of their out of their system, because uh, obviously that chase scene with the motorcycles and T2 is, is straight up iconic at this point. Um, and 
they do it and it's fine. Uh, oh, I think I just remember. I think I just figured out how he knew that the the neighbor lady was bad. The first time he sees her, they don't talk. He just sees her inside her apartment, and she's with a guy who has a weird eye. And then later at the birthday party that his daughter goes to before the big chase scene, he sees the dude with the weird eye come at him. And so he knows because of weird eye dude who was with the girl in the apartment that she's working with. You know, I watched every single frame of this movie and I have no idea what you're talking about. So that's that's, really bad. (laughs) it's, It's clear filmmaking. Just very visual, like, yes, anyway. So then we get the chase scene. Um, Jamie Foxx and his cool old 1950s uh, truck that, you know, I'm I'm sure has been rotted out, so to speak, but still. uh, Against a guy in a, like a, it looks like one of those Baja trucks. Like, I used to play that Iron Man Stewart Baja (laughs) game on Super Nintendo. It looks like one of those trucks. So, you know. uh, That's cool. yeah, it's cool. I was like, oh, cool, man. Um, but so, like, we get this big chase scene, and I feel like this is okay for the most part. But like many of the scenes in this movie, I think it just kind of, it just kind of gets away from JJ Perry. It's chase scenes are really hard. Everybody knows this. I, I'm the fact that it works as well as it does is totally fine. But they're using a lot of drones to try and get some of these shots, and some of the drone work just doesn't really look that great. I think the movement of a drone looks really artificial, and it kind of takes me out of things most of the time. I mean, and maybe it's just a part of the visual language of film that's changing as the technology changes. But drone shots, they tend to look, they're, they're like wide-angle lenses almost exclusively. They, so they look really wide. They look broad. They're typically kind of overblown and overexposed. I think probably to try and, and make sure that they're the speed can keep up kind of thing. And so like there's quite a bit of drone footage in this and I, I don't really like any of it. Um, similar issue with the gray man, right? It's yeah. just, it's, it's so different from any other type of shot in a film that it, it's really difficult for me to not notice it as it swings. By. Same. And you know, like there's, there's some big sweeping shots as the drone like comes in close and, Again, if this is how stunt, if this is where like stunt car chases are going, then I, I guess I'll get used to it. But at this point, it just, it's a lot of the movement of the camera just didn't feel like it was necessary either. There's so much kinetic motion in an action scene like this to begin with that adding in crazy drone shots that sort of run counter, because inevitably the drone shot would swing, it would start like in front of the vehicle and then like, swing past it right there would be this huge sweeping camera move not just like i'm going to use a drone to position this and get a cool angle on this shot but like i'm going to sweep the drone like through the window or something and it's like you don't have to do this it's really okay like you know i know drones can do this i think there's even a shot do you remember this where the drone like came up out of the sunroof of one of the cars that was weird. Remember that shot? That was weird. It like it like rose from the sunroof and then detached from the car and like took off on its own. And it's like I I don't know, man. I I, I just don't know. It's it's not like it looked bad, but it it made me it it took me out of the chasing cuz I was like, why? Why are we doing this? 
So that was, you know, I'm more than happy to acknowledge that I'm just an old man. I'm just an old fuddy-duddy. And I just don't want my chase scenes invaded with all this weird speed drone footage shit. Because I think it all looks bad. Well, it looks, like it. it looks trendy. It's one yes. of those things yeah, that... That's a good way to put it. That I... I feel like there have been a bunch of other things in filmmaking that were really, really hot for like 10 years. And now we look back on it and we're like, oh, this looks like a 2008 movie. Like you can date the movie based on whatever stupid trend they're using. I feel like this is that. I, you know, I I kind of agree. I really do. Because, I mean, if you look at the history of chase films, Right. And, and car chases in film, you know, like there's nothing in the French connection where I look at a scene and I go, man, if only they'd had a drone shot that came out of the sunroof of the car, you know, like a well-executed car chase doesn't need that kind of trickery to make the scene work. Um, Like there was even that one shot where we started with the weird Baja vehicle behind it and then we like shot up into the into the air super fast and then went over and saw that Jamie Foxx's car was like on the road over from that yeah and and I'm like I just I don't see the need for this I don't know why this needs to be here it doesn't have to be and you know again if if you want to to do some cool stuff like that that's fine but I think it it just runs the risk of making me think more about like how the shot was gotten instead of what's happening in the shot. I always kind of find and, and it that's... disorienting. Like if it's not executed very carefully, it, I just, I find it really awkward and disorienting as a viewer. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of where I was at. Um, okay. So it, we're into the third act now. The car chase sort of kicks off act three. Uh, Jamie Foxx's family is kidnapped by the bad vampires. Instead of just killing him immediately, they create an elaborate scenario that he can escape from mm-hmm. because movies have to happen, I guess. Um, and uh, So then we find out that Dave Franco got turned. So here's something we talked about a little bit before, but I'll revisit it here. So this movie was setting up Dave Franco to have an arc. Dave Franco is a muley-mouthed, pee-pee-pants-counting, pee-pee-pants <laughs> supervisor man, right? And Jamie Foxx is obviously trying to, in, in, some, in some, some minimal ways, to sort of school him in the ways of badass vampire huntering, right? And so, like, their, their solution for this, right? Like, how they, they, they close off this potential arc for growth, where maybe Dave Franco can become good assistant vampire hunter boy, right? Instead, he gets turned into a vampire. And not just any vampire, but an uber vampire who who cannot be killed, even via decapitation. And so their conclusion to his arc is that he becomes a badass vampire who still is very concerned about whether or not he poops himself, but then is very pleased when he finds out that vampires no longer can. And this is a joke in the film that vampires can't poop themselves because they don't poop. They spend so so much time talking about pooping and peeing for Dave Franco. (laughs) Just so much. Um, there is an inordinate amount of poopy pee joke. I mean, I, I just kept thinking about the pee pee poo poo. (laughs) This is, 
<laughs> this is where we are here. And it's, it's a, it's a choice in, you know, in how you sort of get your humor in the film. Uh, I guess bravo to Dave Franco for being willing to just be the pee pee poo poo man of the story. But it, it's a, it's a weird choice. And I felt like it was sad that we don't get to really conclude his arc without him being turned into a vampire and becoming a badass vampire to make him not be like this mealy mouthed pee pee poo poo man. Yeah. And it's, it seemed like a wasted opportunity. Like I, it, it changes the final, you know, sort of action sequences because now Dave Franco has all of the abilities of a vampire so he can, you know, jump and kill and, scratch or whatever vampires do. It doesn't really matter. The film doesn't spend a lot of time explaining it either. But, you know, he becomes a good guy, a good vampire, which again, is there precedent for this? Like that's what I was wondering. Cause we haven't met any good vampires and, and the union would seem to suggest that there's no such thing. Yeah. Like it would have been really interesting. I mean, again, this is a movie that is obsessed with its own, exposition but then doesn't give you really obvious exposition pieces that would be useful for you to know because i ended this movie being like so is dave franco because like dave franco's standing at the end of this movie right next to like the union boss and they don't say anything and they say nothing about about the fact that he's now a vampire like is he gonna go to work tomorrow like what is they're like you look sick (laughs) and he's like oh no i got pink eye like, no, dude, you're a vampire. You should probably tell he got, somebody. He got pink eye because of all the poop. Yeah, like he said, that's when you get poop particles in your eye. Like, the movie is obsessed with Dave Franco pooping it's at pee. with Dave Franco's poop. Um, it's just so weird, right? But, like, maybe then Dave Franco could have said, like, oh, man, we've had incidents, you know, positive incidents with vampires in the past. When that happens, we try to open up form... 87 C for, you know, collaboration with vampires or something. And it's like, but no, no, that moment doesn't get expounded upon. That doesn't get explained. Movie just ends. Because his cool, because his sexy neighbor that they're probably setting up for him to have some kind of weird relationship with. We don't know. And then, and then none of it fucking matters because Snoop Dogg shows up with a minigun. I mean, that's really all we need to talk about at the end. Yeah. (laughs) Everything. Everything stops. No one, nothing else matters because Snoop Dogg shows up with Big Bertha, a minigun, and he just f- fucking obliterates like a hundred. I I love Snoop Dogg, and I'm not. <laughs> I mean, like I love rap music. Like you know that anybody who who do, knows yes. me, which is probably not that many people, um, if we're being honest, my life is quite small. Um, I love rap music. I love Snoop Dogg. I love him as a person. I love him in interviews. I love his music. I love his style. I just think he's one of the coolest people on the planet. And so every every moment that he was in front of the camera was pure joy. Um, I mean, he gets the best like shot reveals in this movie. He they have him in this brilliant ten gallon cowboy hat. Like it's. The, this hat is massive, but you know, Snoop Dogg is also he's like massive. Five, so he can <laughs> totally pull it off. And, and so he shows up with this minigun. We get a really, really good squib scene where they just obliterate this mall or something. 
and it, it's glorious. Like that shot alone of him stepping out of his big Dodge Ram with a minigun named Big Bertha is that may be reason enough to see this movie. Yeah. Honestly, like that shot, because it's just so gorgeous. Um, I mean, but again, he's Snoop Dogg isn't the hero of this movie, but he is the one that's getting all of this stuff. And I, I don't know if that's on purpose, if that is Jamie Foxx being like, give it to Snoop, like let Snoop have it. He let him be the badass. I mean, I guess it's really the Han Solo formula, right? I mean, that's kind of what this is, is, you know, Jamie Foxx is Luke Skywalker. He's like, I'm going to go to Tashi Station and pick up some power converters. And then Snoop Dogg is like, woohoo, you know, go get him, kid. Whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it, it's just it's it's a very weird thing to have Snoop kind of steal this movie out from Oscar winner Jamie Foxx. But um, it's totally OK. Like, again, the stunt work in this is pretty unparalleled. Some of it's over the top and it goes on too long and it's it's too loud and and whatever, but it's, it's very, very well done. And whenever the stunt guy that they got that did that like spinning kick flip on that vampire at the end. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a nice, like it's, it's nice to think that Snoop Dogg could do a spinning kick flip on a dude like that. I know it wasn't him, but that's still cool. That's still really cool. <laughs> Uh, all right, so everything comes down, and and we go down into some kind of tunnel underneath the shopping mall. Which again, that's funny, you know, that we'd have this, you know, <laughs> ancient vampire <laughs> temple underneath some shopping mall in Southern California. Great, hilarious. Somebody, you know, somebody in the writers' room patted themselves on the back that day and got an extra Danish from Starbucks or whatever. But it's just one of those like you know, does it really matter kind of things. And and so it comes down, our main villain has his family. He has to go in there and, you know, he fights her. Of course, she turns into like creepy vampire lady. She kicks off her heels because girls get it done, I guess. <laughs> I uh, like, why didn't <laughs> like, she just take just... her shoes off? Instead, she I breaks her shoes. She breaks the heels off her shoes, but retains but keeps form-fitting comfort. Because she doesn't want to hurt her feet. She doesn't want to get any glass in her foot, ruin her painted toenails, because I'm sure they were painted. That was just real yeah. weird. Like, I just would have taken my shoes off. These last couple of vampire, like, big vampire fights. Like, at this point, our heroes have, have deleted, like, straight murdered hundreds of upon hundreds of vampires at this point in the film. And so you're going to tell me that these two vampires at the end are just so much more powerful than all of these other vampires. Like she's, and again, in their, their endless explanations of the vampire hierarchy, they do introduce the idea of like ancient vampires that are so old that they have so much more power, whatever. But again, like, Jamie Foxx has been fighting vampires for decades, like decades. Are you telling me that he's never fought one that's this old or this powerful? And it's just never happened. Ultimately, she's not that powerful and he outsmarts no. her really quickly, but they build it up and like it's going to be this ultimate boss battle. Yeah. Um, which I, I, I liked that. And I also liked that her, her demise was kind of a callback to this, you know, this thing that he does in vampire hunting that everybody kind of makes fun of through the movie. 
um, or at least the uh, the guy one of the guys makes fun of it and says that it's a cheap trick. Um, yeah. So I I liked that, but it still it felt like it was built up really to be this showdown that didn't happen. Yeah, it it just you know she the his wife gets a chance she like stabs her through the through the heart with a pole or something and so she's got a pole sticking out of her chest for the rest of the fight and then he shoots her in the in the back of the head right mm-hmm. and then she like grabs she catches the bullet, the bullet. teeth oh, okay cuz she's so powerful and and then rushes at him to kill him and he does the same trick that we saw him do in the opening where he puts like a thin garret wire across an entryway and takes her head off and it, it cuts her head. And it, which, and it's the, the triple threat where they've got a stake in their heart because they're allergic to wood <laughs> and you shoot him with the special bullet. I don't know. Is it a garlic bullet? I don't know. I, I, I stopped paying so. attention. Something. It's, it's not a silver bullet because it's werewolves, but it's probably yes, something like that. Silver bullets, yes. And then it's garlic bullets, bullets coated with garlic. And you put that through bullets, their head and bullets dipped in Papa John's signature mm, garlic sauce. It's a shame that mm. vampires can never enjoy that. Yeah, they'll never be able to dip high quality pepperoni pizza with the finest ingredients. Not only will I not live forever because I'm not a vampire, but I will shorten my lifespan significantly by enjoying lots of Papa John's garlic butter. There it is. I mean, that's that's how it works. That's life. I mean, what is life if you can't enjoy Papa John's garlic butter? I mean, the the delicious array of sauces that you can dip Papa John's pizza into is unparalleled. It's one thing I miss Uh, about the U.S. (laughs) Do me a favor. Put a bunch of Papa John's garlic butter packets into an envelope and just send it to me. Sounds I'm sure the Swedish authorities won't object to that. Why is this envelope so greasy? <laughs> what is this? What am I? Oh, my God. Oh, it smells. <laughs> <laughs> is this for vampires? <laughs> so, so, you know, the final battle itself. I mean, there's some fighting in a hallway. Uh, Snoop Dogg sacrifices himself for, um, for the group seemingly um, fighting some vampires. Then, you know, they get approached by the the bureaucracy. I I did note that they put Dave Franco in one of those like hacky sack hoodies. I don't, I can't think of them in any other way. The only people I've ever known who wear those hoodies, smoke a lot of pot and kick a lot of hacky sack. Oh yeah. Um, It's like, the Baja like those, hoodie. Those wool, the Baja hoodie. <laughs> yeah. It is. And so again, I think somebody was like, Oh, this is a very California thing. And this will show his growth because he's not in a suit anymore. Yeah, I guess. And and I was like, okay, sure, you guys are losing me a little bit here. Uh, so yeah, then the boss shows up, and they just don't address the fact that Dave Franco's a vampire now, and nobody notices. But and they do very... make time for another poop joke. It, well, I mean, it's the end of the movie. You got to pay off all. <laughs> it's it's set up and payoff. We've set up all of these poop jokes. We have to have one final poop joke to sort of close to ride us into the sunset. One last poop joke. Sunset of poop jokes. (laughs) And, you know, 
we've we've seen this ending in an action movie dozens and dozens of times, right? It's it's the ending of Commando where he just puts Alyssa Milano on his shoulder and they just walk off camera. You know, yeah. it's like, well, this is over now. All right, thanks everybody. You know, it's just Radon Chong's in the car. You know, whatever. Yeah. Like it's it's just. <laughs> So I, I don't want to make it seem like the ending of this film is is somehow less than because it's just exactly what we've seen before. But it, in a film with this much going on, I know it's always a challenge to bring them to a conclusion, but it feels like there could have been some more emotional resonance here. Something done. Uh, the wife, you know, is, is not going to take uh, Jamie Foxx back. Right. There's an implication that they feel stronger about each other. This one might say that this intense experience has brought them together uh, in a way not unlike Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock experienced in Speed. But as we know, they say people whose relationships are forged on intense experiences, they, they don't tend to last. Uh, as it, we discover in Speed 2, starring Jason Patrick. And Sandra it's Bullock. the diehard to... to, to uh... Die Hard Three <laughs> conundrum, <laughs> where <laughs> right. like there's this sweet moment where you think that um, that John McClane and Holly are gonna get together, and then no, no, they're not. Nah. It's not gonna nope. happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Can't do that. <laughs> and it's you know, again, I, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Like I have no emotional investment in any of these individuals to care whether or not they get back together. Uh, but it's it's one of those things like you're trying to close out this movie. What are you going to do? And so they made the safe bet. And this is why the ending of the movie is actually fine. The family drives away in their Kia minivan or whatever. And then, you know, Snoop emerges from the sewers. apparently. Fantastic. <laughs> and he's like, I love Southern California. And then he lights up a dude, as you would expect. And, you know. Lovely. That was just, great. Just lovely. It's great. Like the movie just should have ended there. Or it, well, it does end there, but we didn't even need all the stuff in the mall with like the angry union boss or whatever. Like, just have Snoop Talk come out of the bottom and be like, "Yeah, this place is pretty cool." I mean, they knew that that was that was the lasting impression. That's what you want people to think about when they leave the experience mm-hmm. is Snoop oh. Dogg. <laughs> yep, Snoop is there. It's, it's where we close. Um, I, I think that this movie's credits actually say a lot about the movie they. Th- Thought they were making versus the movie they made. And I was just going to ask you about this because the ending credits, they've got this very, um, I'm going to go ahead and say seventies font, mm. uh, running over it. Like it's, it's very, it, it feels like a seventies title sequence. Um, I recently watched another film that I, I hope we'll talk about on here eventually called spin me round. And it does this same thing. It has like a very seventies, credits opening um even to the point that it does the whole like title and then like the copyright date down in the bottom like they used to do in the 70s over title cards they don't really do anymore um and this one it's it's a lot of this like cool font very scratchy sort of grindhouse looking and then like interspersed with just rapid flash shots of like vampire teeth and shit like that and it feels very grindhousey and very 70s and i'm like this movie isn't that like no. not at all. Right. Like, so what, so it, it's one of those things was I was watching the credits and I, I try to always watch the credits of movies. Just, you know, I like to see who was involved. Sometimes you see some weird names. 
And I was like, is that the movie they thought they were making? Like a grindhouse 70s style, like slasher vampire movie? Because that's not it at all. Did they they think they were making from dusk till dawn? Like, is that what they thought? Because that's not what this is at all. Like, this is like, like late 80s, early 90s action movie through and through, like top to bottom, right? Like this could have been, this could have come out in 1993 and done fine. Without many changes, given the soundtrack, right? yeah, you wouldn't have had to really do much. Uh, maybe push it a little bit later, like all of the cars and everything, like all of it could have been in that time frame. And I, so it was one of those things. Is like, okay, I, obviously these this was a bit of a passion project. I don't think anybody was, you know, nobody was showing up for the paycheck for this. I, I think this was something where they were like, oh, this is a cool story. We can do cool things with it. But at the same time, I don't know if there was this. I, well, I know there was not a unity of vision from top to bottom for this movie. I, this movie feels very sort of piecemeal in terms of its plot, the execution of its story, and so much so that, I again, it makes it hard to recommend because it's, it's one of those like, well, do you like these kind of movies or are you into this kind of thing? Can you tolerate like, this a, happening? <laughs> right. Like, are you going to be okay with Dave Franco shitting himself no less than three times in this film? <laughs> like it's that kind of thing that you have to ask. Like, like if you enjoy the constant assertion that Dave Franco has shat his own pants and that the smell is so bad that it can be smelled feet away from him, then maybe this movie is for you. But if you would look at that scenario and say, I don't think I'm interested in that, then I'm going to say maybe, maybe make this one a pass maybe let this one go on by um so it's it's strange this is one of the most like conflicted movies that i've watched in a while because i think i went in wanting to like it based on where it came from based on the people involved i think i actually came into this and i I do with most movies like I'm, i'm a pretty upbeat movie watcher right i don't hate watch a lot of movies these days right where i'm just like ah this is gonna suck ass i got oh i'm gonna check this shit out but at the same time, I feel like I went in thinking like, oh, this is probably going to be pretty solid. And then it kind of wasn't. And that's that's hard, right? Because you just kind of want to see movies like this do okay. Because I'm one of the first people to get on the train that stunt performers in Hollywood do not get the credit they deserve for the work that they do. Agreed. And at this point, as I, as I said earlier, like in most cases, it is now essential work. Right. This okay. So if you if you watched only Murders in the Building on Hulu, I am part way through the first season. Not done yet. Have have they introduced Charles's stunt double yet? No. Okay. So later in that season, you're going to be introduced to Charles's stunt double from his days on his television show Brazos. <laughs> right. Because at one time, to be a stunt person, all you really had to do was look vaguely like the other individual. And be willing to like throw yourself down a set of stairs. Yeah. That's it. Right? Like that was, you're a stunt person. Um, Okay. I want to tell you who the stunt person is because it's. Go ahead. It says a lot of, okay. uh, It's Jane Lynch. (laughs) With Steve Martin's stunt double. That's funny. Um, and, And the joke, the additional joke on the top of it is that his wife, first wife, left him for her <laughs> because she was a better version of him than he <laughs> That's funny. which mm, chef's kiss that only murders in the building is such beautiful 
beautiful comedy. Um, so good. I just, oh man, the second season, a lot of people didn't like the second season apparently, or at least some people I've talked to and, and some reviews that I've read were kind of like middling on it. I, I think in terms of the character work, the second season is way better than the first, even, um, you know, we could argue about the quality of the mystery or whatever, but I, I just, they're just firing on all cylinders in terms of the trio of, and Selena fucking Gomez. She's great. What? I, I, I literally gave less than any shits about Selena Gomez at any point in her career. Like I do not like, I missed the boat on that whole like Nickelodeon Disney kid train. Like, I don't care if you were the kid with the puppet and victorious, like I don't give a shit. Right. But like, she is fantastic on that show. And so, so good. Anyway. Okay. So sidebar, (laughs) but so like stunt, stunt work has changed, right? Substantially. And now it is such an incredibly technical and demanding job that just ruins your effing body. Like, like, you know, you think about the res what was it? Resident Evil five or something. They were shooting a motorcycle chase and that stunt woman got hit by a crane car and like she lost like an arm. She lost an eye, you know, like her life is over because they were shooting a motorcycle chase. Like, and I understand like, you know, she'll be taken care of. Like, you know, that's part of like what you agree to when you do stunt work on a film. But yet at the same time, the risks are so high and the requirements so strenuous to do that kind of work now that they deserve it. And so if these are the kinds of movies that continue to make sure that stunt people get to do their profession and do their work in an environment with people who know the risks and do the best to mitigate them and keep them safe while still producing incredible high quality stunts, then thumbs up. Like thumbs up on that alone, right? Like, please continue. But I feel like this movie misses the opportunity to do that, but also like tell a good story that I want to be involved in. Like it's, it struggles to balance those two things and it's, it's still worthwhile. Like I, at the end of the day, I still think it's, it's worth watching. I, I th- there's enough in it for me that I would definitely, you know, check it out again, especially if I was watching it with someone who was curious about it. Um, but for just the average viewer, you know, poking around on Netflix, looking for something, I'm not sure they're going to find much here to like, to be honest. Yeah. I would say that's, that's fair. <laughs> like I said, I, I can't imagine clicking in on it. And if you don't like it within the first five minutes, there's just no way that you're going to stick through. Like, I just can't imagine. I, there's, there's very few times when I would be interested in seeing sort of Netflix viewership algorithm. But on this movie, I'd kind of like to see, you know, how many people tapped out, how many people saw it all the way through kind of thing. Because I, I would imagine there'd be quite a few that just tap out. Because it's pretty gory, too. And the gore comes kind of unexpectedly. It'll just kind of happen. Um, again, it's a vampire movie, so that shouldn't be unexpected. But at the same time, you know, if you're not ready for it, you watch some person get their head chopped off and a giant font of black blood spurts out of the neck. <laughs> you know, you might be like, oh, I wasn't expecting that at all. Uh, so anyway. Uh, all right. So uh, I, I think we've covered the big beats. Uh, if you love Snoop Dogg, you've probably already watched this. Uh, but if you do and you haven't, then definitely go check it out for him because he's 
if this is the kind of stuff that we could be expecting from Snoop Dogg in this kind of late stage of his acting career, I'm down for it. I would love to see so much more of this just general joyous clowning from him. Be in yeah, movies like, and have a good time and I'll watch it. I mean, I just, I, it's, there's a piece of me that can't help but love that there's an entire generation of people, right? People who are in their 20s who only know Snoop Dogg in this mode, <laughs> who, who don't remember the murder trial, <laughs> who don't remember the drug conviction. I, I like, they just know I like Snoop that, as this like cool dude. And, you know, and, and you know, he's being known for his, his investments, his, his philanthropy, his, I mean, I love it. I think he's a great person. I always have, I've always thought he was cool. And yeah. no, I mean, all of those things were, so far in his past, like, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm, I just, I think it's wonderful that there will be people in the world who only get to know him by all of this goodness that he has brought to the world and all of the good things that he has done, uh, ever since those things and who don't have to deal with the baggage of that previous life that, you know, propelled him to stardom. Like it had its, its place in his career, I guess. But now we just get to enjoy, you know, Martha Stewart Snoop. He's just having a good time, you know, and, and I think that's great. That's wonderful. It makes me happy. So, um, all right. Any final thoughts on day shift? Um, pee, pee, poo, poo, pee, pee, poo, pee, man. pee, poo, poo, pee, pee, poo, poo, man. Part two. <laughs> um, yeah, I honestly, I kind of, I, I guess I'll start, but I kind of, this is one that I kind of, th- I hope they do make a sequel. Because I would like to see them be able to make a movie and not feel like they have to cram in all this world building. Ideally, what what would happen is that the sequel to this would rely upon the world building of the first, add maybe one or two more elements, and then just run with the characters in the scenario instead of feeling like they have to just cram in all this world building. Just let it breathe. And that I think might be interesting to just get a vampire hunting movie with Jamie Foxx. Maybe, I mean, you know, to me, it seems pretty obvious that like the leader of the union or whatever is like a Van Helsing or something, right? Like yeah. you know, they go to Transylvania or something. Well, they teased and, like, the, the El Jefe thing several times throughout the movie that there's, mm-hmm. you know, some big vampire daddy. So it sounds like they're headed to sequel town and I hope that it gets there. Yeah. Like this is one that I wouldn't mind a sequel. Because I think it would actually allow them to to just sort of push in the directions that I would have hoped that this one went, which is just having fun, playing with the premise, doing interesting stuff, instead of all of this just insistent, over-complicated world building, right? Yeah. You know, it just doesn't have to be there. Um, not all in this big, these big chunks, right? Like a good 20, 30 minutes of this movie is devoted to that kind of stuff, and it just doesn't really work. Um, so yeah, I, I, would, I would hope that they get another shot, but... Just run with it, right? Don't feel like you got to keep layering on, which is the John Wick mistake. John Wick just keeps layering on, you know, like in the third movie, he goes to meet the man above the high table or something. It's like a dude in a tent in the desert. I'm like, what is, what is this? Right? Like, yeah. Why? why are we doing this? You know, like that kind of thing, uh, you know, just, just sort of take it easy on that stuff and just, you know, sort of run and, and do a fun sequel and have fun. So uh, a middling recommend for me, not, not a, a hard recommend. I think it's, it's got a lot of equivocations required 
to ensure that you would enjoy it. But there's there's enough going on here, and Jamie Foxx and Snoop are compelling enough performers that I think if if you like their work and enjoy sort of seeing them together, then this it's a pretty fun one of those two. I agree. Yeah, like I said, I I think um, I'm a big stunt stunt person guy. I like to follow stunt work um, and, and the people involved. And so it's, it's kind of cool to see a lot of those people show up in here. And again, I'm, I'm all about giving stunt people the, the acknowledgement that they deserve. Um, hopefully in the sequel, they can bring in like, I don't know, Donnie Yen or something. Just let him go ham on a bunch of vampires <laughs> or something. That would be cool. Um, although apparently Donnie Yen's got to the point where he just, he just hurts people. <laughs> <He's> just <laughs> um, I heard a story on, uh, the uh, corridor digital guys. Um, the, there was a stunt guy in there that told the story that Donnie Yen now, like, you know, you'll, you'll go in to do stunts and Donnie Yen will be fighting you and he'll just like slip you a couple hundred bucks. And he'll be like, I'm, I'm going to hit you now. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> and he just actually oh. lays them out, oh. you know, and it's just one of those, like, you got to get the shot. And so the only way we're going to get this shot is if I actually punch you in the face and knock you on the ground, Yikes. <laughs> you know? So like, um, I, I'm sure that's pretty minimal, but you know, it, people forget that guys like Jackie Chan and, Don, and Donnie Yen are are like actual world champion martial artists who can absolutely beat the living shit out of you if they want to. They just you know do all this stunt work stuff because that spends more money. Hey, and JG Perry, and you like shouldn't, the guy who directed this you movie, shouldn't beat world people champion up. martial artist, man. You shouldn't really no, shouldn't hurt no. people. It's not nice. No, we shouldn't hurt people for stuff. That's one of the things I love about. About Jackie Chan is that Jackie Chan, even though he has put people, including himself, in really dangerous and precarious situations, he tries to keep that you know to a minimum. Those are generally not the situations. But let, let us not forget that he is the person that suggested that Michelle Yeoh jump a dirt bike onto a moving train in Police Police Story Three. Oh, yeah. So um, you know she pulled it off because Michelle Yeoh is badass. My but, wife. You know, oh wait, it's still dangerous. Not my wife. <laughs> wait. No. Just in my yeah, dreams. <laughs> in everything, everywhere, all at once, there are millions of universes. Perhaps in one of there them. There is a universe where Michelle Yeoh is my wife. I'm, I'm, I could be down. <laughs> I, I need to watch that movie again. I almost bought it in 4K last week, and I didn't because it was very expensive at the place I was looking. And then I'm going to try and find a better copy. And I know, I just know in the back of my head, like Criterion or somebody is going to put out a 4K release of that with like all this cool background shit. It's just, it's inevitable. So I don't know if I just want to buy the straight studio release that just comes with a weird slip cover or something. Like I, I bet there's going to be a better version. Um, but anyway, I, I, I need to rewatch that movie again because it's uh, so good. So good. All right. Well, I guess that wraps up our thoughts on Day Shift. Uh, another Netflix content mill special that may have ri- may have risen above the rest, at least enough to pay attention to. Uh, all right. So if people can find you online and let you know how they feel about Dave Franco's incredible ability to make it appear as if he has shit his pants, where can they do it? Um, you can find me on Twitter. I am the Baskinator. I try to tweet at least once a week about poop particles in the eye and pee pee poo poo jokes. That's how you get pink eye. I don't know if you understand. I'm that. trying to spread awareness. Uh, but yeah, you can find me at Baskinator on Twitter. 
Nice. You can find me at T Baskin, where I will be tweeting frequently about my own bouts with pink eye because of poop particles in the air. Uh, I, I only get it once a month or so, but you know, there's just a lot of poop in the world. And I try to be the guy who's on. The <laughs> You're just constantly shitting yourself, so it's a huge danger. <laughs> just <laughs> shitting myself constantly, <laughs> pink eye everywhere. Just can't stop. You can't it. even it's see anymore. No, no, my eyes are so ruined by pink eye from shitting myself that I just I can't even survive. Anymore. <laughs> So you can find me at T-Basket. You can get us at F-Peace Theater on Twitter if you want to get us together or follow us there. And of course, if you're going to email us to rant a little bit longer than normal, you can always get us at failurepeace at gmail.com. All right, thanks for listening, and we will be back in the very near future with more discussions of cinematic misses, misfires, and disasters that may still be worth your time. Have a good one. Bye-bye.